We're doing a small series through 1 John, and we're just focusing on the big ideas in 1 John. John wrote, let's just move that on. John wrote his letter to refute the false teachers who had come into the church and were teaching another gospel. He also wrote it to provide spiritual assurance for the church. Because the false teachers had come in and said, well, you know, what you had believed, it's, uh, it's not quite right. It threw into confusion what they had believed. And so he writes also two-sided to refute the false teachers, but also to give them assurance of their faith. You know, assurance is, a, I guess, an old-style word. It's a theological word, but it, it has to do with how we know that we know. How we know that we know God. We can be absolutely assured. The, the purpose of being strong in assurance is that we would, would not doubt or we would not waver, but we would have this beautiful certainty of eternal life and knowing the Lord Jesus. That's what assurance is all about. There are many things that can come our way that sort of rock our salvation. Even just things like sickness and illness and suffering in the world is probably the biggest thing when we encounter things that you know, don't go well. It, it, it makes us think, well, where is God? And it can rock our assurance of his love. But there are many other things that can come our way too that upset our assurance of salvation. So John writes, and you can see in chapter, sorry, chapter th- 5, verse 13, right at the end of the book, chapter 5, verse 13, just uh, turn to that. He, he gives his, his reason why he's written the letter. And you can see the assurance part of it. I write these things to you. In other words, I've just written all this letter, and this is why I've written them to you, who believe in the name of the, the Son of God, So you already believe so that you may know that you have eternal life. Okay, They already believe, but it's how do you know that you believe? What is it that really is the basis of this that that assures you? And it also has to do with these false teachers who had come in. Because they had come into the church claiming that they knew the truth and that their way was better than what John or the other pastors were teaching. So they had come in and saying, we know God. But they didn't know God. They certainly didn't know Jesus. And John writes to them to give the church reasons or how to make sure that these guys, you know, how they can assess them and say, no, you don't really know God. You say you know God, but you're not doing these things. So it proves you don't know God. Right? And the three big things he talks about in the letter, and this is what the next three sermons will be on. Okay, So today it's assurance through holiness. We know that we know God because we live a holy life. That's what obedience is all about in our Bible reading. Okay, We obey. That's what it said. And obedience has been defined in this book as holiness, purity, wanting to be like Jesus. So that's the first big test of assurance. That's the, the sentence that we need to get inside our head. A, the test of assurance. Holiness, living a holy life. The second big one that we'll look at is love. 
Okay? If you're not loving as God loves, then it's a good indication you don't really know God. And the third one is truth. If you're not believing the truth, you've got a different truth or you just don't believe it, that's the final test of assurance. And this is the three sort of big elements in this book, okay? So over the next week, next few weeks, apart from next Sunday, we'll be looking at these three tests of assurance. Holiness, love and truth. And they are absolutely important in the life of a church. You know, this is not just three sermons, right? These three truths that he brings here are absolutely essential for the life of a church ongoing. It's a way of structuring what church should be. It should be people who live a holy life, love one another, and obey the truth or believe the truth of the gospel. Okay? So truth, love, and holiness are the real big marks of what a believer is, the tests of assurance, and what a church should be filled with. Okay? If each believer has those three marks, then add up all those people in a church, and that's what the church will look like. That makes sense, doesn't it? It's absolutely fundamental, these, this teaching in 1 John about assurance. He wants to make sure that these, this church, that they have the confidence that they have not gone down the wrong, the wrong track and they don't need to listen to these false teachers. John uh, talks in John last week, but the Apostle John uses two descriptions of Christians throughout this book. The first sort of half, he uses those who walk in the light. Okay, and that's what John talked a bit about that, the light. Okay, God is light. You must walk in the light. Okay, it's a very general description of a Christian. But then the second half, he uses this, he changes from light, walking in the light, to the sons of God or the children of God. And that's like his dominant description of what a Christian is. But he uses these three things, holiness, love and truth, in the first half. And then he circles back. And in the second half, when he talks about the children of God, he uses those same three again. Okay? It's, it's a very interesting, interesting book and it's, it's an um, interesting way that he's structured it. It's, it can be confusing. It's not like Paul, when Paul's letters are very logical and he, he starts with theology and then he, or the problems in the church and then he goes into Christian living, like Ephesians is your classic. First three chapters about theology, second three about how to live. And uh, Paul's very logical in his uh, explanations. John's not like that, okay? So you could say Paul's teaching is lineal. It goes along a straight line from here to there. Whereas what John does, it's more circular. He starts here, goes around here, then he starts to loop back to what he said at the start. And then he moves on in the book and he starts again with a second loop. He goes up here, then he comes back. It's not lineal, it's two big loops, Okay, that's how he struck. That's why when you read it, you go, "Oh, hang on, hasn't he already said this?" Then you you read another half of a chapter, and you go, "Oh, but I thought he's already said this before," uh, and because it's all these circles, right? It's a very different way to think, but that's how John did it. So certain uh, 
you know, Bible teachers and theologians outline the book in, in two, there's two sort of common ways the book is outlined or structured. I, I love the way um, this great preacher James Montgomery Boyce from the 10th Presbyterian Church, he's dead now, but I used to listen to his sermons and read his books all the time. James Montgomery Boyce, great Presbyterian preacher. And another guy called R. Law. Um, their outline, which is like one of the common ways, it's like what I've just explained. Two cycles. One about walking the light and the three tests. And then the second, children of God and those three tests repeated. And then the final cycle, right at the end, is he goes through those three again. Holiness, love and truth, but quickly. He sort of goes back, goes around like to, to really hammer them home in the last section. All right? Does that make sense to everyone? That's how the book is uh, structured. Okay, so let's go through, through this. As Nita says, it's very powerful. Uh, but I'll, I'll use it another part in the second part as well as the first part. Dear Lord, thank you that you've spoken your word to us and it's been faithfully recorded and it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, men inspired by God, to write down your very words. We can trust your words. Help us to understand and live your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the general principle that he begins with. Assurance. There we go. That's my outline, right? Assurance comes through obedience. Verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. Very similar to what Jesus himself has said. So did you hear that? We know that we've come to know him. In other words, how do you know that you know? It's not enough just to say... Someone asks you, how do you know that you know Jesus? Uh, because. Because I just do. <laughs> how do you know that you know God? How do you know that you know God? Think about that. He gives us some reasons here. We know that we've come to know him if we obey his commands. <laughs> This is the first real big proposition, the first proof of assurance. It's developed further on. And rather than being an encouragement that this might, this sentence might actually depress you. It's so challenging and it's so simple. You know that you've come to know God if you obey his commands. Wow, there's lots of commands and obedience is sort of an all-conquering thing like, what if I don't always? Does that mean I don't know God? These are the questions that that raises or the feelings. It may actually make you feel sad that that's the case. But it's all explained further on. If holiness is the proof that I know God, we might say, then I'm done for. For I'm not good enough to think of myself as holy. That's a very good humble way to think of yourself. So why is this such an encouragement? Because, as it says, it shows that God's love has been made complete in us. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. 
it shows that the love of God has found a home inside your heart. God lives in you and because God is love, his love lives in you. And because God's love lives in you, it motivates you to want to please God. You should have those feelings inside of you. As a Christian, you should want to please God, surely. Surely. We all feel like that. So it's because God's love has been made complete in us, it pushes us, it wants us to obey Him. It shows that God's love has truly been you know, made complete, lives in us, is perfect in, in us. And more specifically, to want to live as Jesus did, as it says in verse 6. Whoever claims to live in him, and when it says whoever claims in this book, it's talking about the false teachers who are making claims. So he's referring to people who are making claims. I know God. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. So when we say, you know, what does it mean to obey God? Live as Jesus did. It's been made very clear to us there. What about if we don't always obey? If I sin, does that mean I don't know God? Well, the brilliance about this, and as John mentioned last week in the passages he went through, that God has given us a process of dealing with sin. Okay, so the mark is obedient holiness. We know we fall short of that. Don't worry, it doesn't mean you don't know God if you slip up because God's given us something to obey, which is a process of getting things right with him again. Okay? If we claim to be without, and again, claim, that's the false teachers, they're claiming to be perfect. If we claim to be without sin, verse 8 of chapter 1, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not it. So John's quite um, open about Christians. They may still sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and purify from us from all unrighteousness. So, okay, the, the, the goal is obedient holiness, that we fall short of it, we sin sometimes, so we go through the, pro we obey, we still obey, we obey the process of getting right with him, confess our sin, recognise that Jesus took our sin upon him on the cross. We thank Jesus for his forgiveness that's come into our life. We, we think about that, that now we are clean because Jesus took our sin upon himself. So you go through that little process, keep short accounts, as it's often called, and we, our assurance is fulfilled again. We have obeyed. We've sinned, but we've obeyed because we've confessed it. Okay, So even though we may fall short of absolute perfect holiness, that shouldn't discourage you because we then just obey the process of getting things right. The important point here is that sin is not ignored or taken lightly by the one who walks in the light. In fact, when we do sin, we feel regret, don't we? I hope. Yeah. We feel regret. We feel embarrassed in ourselves. 
It's not what we want. We go, why did I do that? That's not me. That's not following Jesus. I feel bad about that. So the proof that you are holy is that you take sin seriously and that you go through that process. If you, you know, didn't care about holiness, if you didn't care about obedience to God, then you'd be just sinning and going, you know, don't even care about it. You'd just be going on. But the fact is that you go through this regret, you know, I want to get things right, confess my sin to God, is proof that you know God. Smile, everyone. It's proof that you know God because that proves the Holy Spirit's in you doing his work, wanting to please God. So, as he says, the man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. Okay, so that person who claims to know God but doesn't care about obedient holiness continues to sin and doesn't feel regret doesn't go through the process of you know, confession and they just live as they please. That is proof of a person who doesn't know God. Isn't it? That's what I used to be like before I was a Christian. But then something changed in me. I used to not care about sin at all. But then I was converted and then I really cared about it. You know, and I thought, why do I keep sinning? I don't want to now. But the fact that I went through that, why do I keep doing this, means I know God. Do you get it? It proves. It's assurance. It goes, rather than the devil going, hey, look, you're hopeless, you're a sinner, turn that frown upside down and go, hey, devil, the fact that I regret it proves that I know God. It doesn't prove I'm hopeless. It proves that God is great and I cling to him. It proves I know God, doesn't it? (laughs) In verse 6, very specific, live as Jesus did. That's what it looks like. Now, the human life of Jesus becomes the measuring stick of true moral and ethical behaviour. That's what he's saying here. John is not expecting us to be perfect like Christ. That is impossible for us. But it is what we aim at. He's our example. His mercy and compassion is what we aim at. We want to be like that. You know, when someone comes along our way and, you know, they need help, when we go through a process of, like the lady, you know, I felt bad. I felt, oh, what did we do for that lady a couple of weeks ago? She's coming in before. Oh, you know, I toss up in my head, oh, how much do we give her? Oh, maybe she's got bigger issues, you know. What about a budget? What you spending? I go through all this thing. Oh, but, but basically I should help her because Jesus said to help. You know, I go through that whole thing because I care about these things and I care about what God wants from me. You know, I think it does us a power, powerful lot of good to regularly just read through the Sermon on the Mount. You know, it's challenging Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. It's challenging, but that's like the the high mark to aim at. And it reminds us, you know, when someone does something wrong to us, our response has got to be love. Not what we feel like doing, but love. You know, we've got to keep that live as Jesus did fresh in our mind. Because that's the heart of being a Christian. 
And if you know God, you'll want to please him. His commitment to the truth, Jesus, his prayer life and his dependence on the Father, his gentleness, his vision for God's kingdom. That's our role model. Now, John, after leaving those verses, I've gone through those, uh, those few verses. Now we go over to the second half of the book where he changes from what it looks like to live in the light to what it looks like to be a child of God, which is pretty much the same thing, but he's using a different term. Yeah, he's, he's just describing the life of a person who knows God, you, now using the children of God. So you can see it in, at the beginning of chapter 3. In fact, chapter 2, verse 28, I've got a heading in my Bible. It says, children of God. Is that what your Bible says? Chapter 2, verse 28, somewhere around there. Children of God. Hope you got your Bibles open. What's it say? God's children, yeah. And earlier, uh, chapter 1 says, walking in the light. Okay? So they're the two basic um, descriptors of, of a Christian. So now he goes on to use the children of God as its general description, but now he circles back to this idea of assurance through holiness, um, and he develops that. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. And here, assurance is shown by the desire in the person to purify themselves. Okay, we have this desire to purify ourselves. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. See, there's the children. And that is what we are. Notice the assurance part of it. That is what we are, people. He's really trying to hammer it home to them. Don't let the false teachers say you're not a child of God. That is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Verse 2 of chapter 3. Dear friends, now we are, see, we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. In other words, when Jesus comes back, it's not quite clear what we'll look like. But we know that we, when Christ appears, we shall be like him. We at least know that. For we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. So here is this second great part of assurance through obedient holiness. God puts that desire in us to purify us. Everyone who has this hope of being like Jesus purifies themselves, okay? You have this thing in you where you just are pushed to live a pure, a pure life. And because we're anticipating Jesus coming back, we want to be pleasing to Jesus when he comes back. We don't want to be displeasing, don't we? We want to be ready for his return, just like this week when Sharon returned from a week in Canberra in Sydney, I cleaned the house and made myself look presentable. <laughs> we know Jesus is coming. It could be any day. So we want to be pure and ready. So that's proof that you know God. Because you want to please him. You want to please him when he returns. Everyone who has his hope purifies themselves. You can't help it. 
If you ignore it and don't care about it, well, maybe you don't know God. But if you do, which I'm sure you do, it proves again you really know God. If you knew Jesus was coming tomorrow, how would you live? Would you pray? I think so. Would you read your Bible a little bit more? I think so. Would you download some hymns from YouTube like I did this week? That's why I picked all these hymns. Yes, probably. I think you would. You would do this because you belong to him. Would you go back to 1 John chapter 1 and confess sin that has built up in the last whatever amount of time and get things right with God? I think you would if you knew Jesus was coming. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself. This is assurance. It's proof. How do you know that you know God? Because you have this incredible desire inside of you that wasn't there before to purify yourself and please Jesus. You know, if someone says to you, how do you know that you know God? What would you say after listening so far to my sermon? How do you know that you know God? You know? Yeah, you say you know God. Are you some religious freak? Everyone says they know God. How do you know that you know God? Anyone can say they know God, like these false... How do you know you know God? I hope that you would answer that by saying, I never used to care about how I lived, whether it pleased God or not. But now I do. I want to live a pure life and obey Jesus. That's proof that something's changed in me, that God lives inside of me. The Holy Spirit is at work pushing past my desires and getting God's desires. And finally, we see this wonderful sense of assurance that you know you know God because God's seed is living in us. In verse 9 of chapter 3. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him because he has been born of God. First, he provides a definition of sin. So make sure you have a look at that. Chapter 3, verse 4. It's very interesting. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is, whole, is lawlessness, right? Now, there are two different Greek words he uses here. He uses the word hamartian for sin. So sin, everyone who sins... Everyone who hamartian sins, breaks the law. In fact, sin is, and then the second word, lawlessness, okay? Anomian. So sin and lawlessness. So sin is described as breaking God's law. Lawlessness is something, I guess, more serious because it's rebellion against God. Lawlessness, okay? You can sin, break a law, but if you live a lawlessness life, you're going, I don't care about the law, I don't care about God, I'm living lawlessness. Maybe not lawlessness in terms of, you know, driving your car around here, but lawlessness in, in terms of God's law. I don't care. That's what he says. So sin is an event, but it's also an attitude. 
J.I. Packer, one of the greatest theologians, says both Old and New Testament says that sin is rebellion against God's rule. It's missing the mark. It's transgressing God's law, disobeying God's directives. Sin is a lack of conformity to God's law in act, in habit, in attitude, in outlook, in disposition, in motivation, and mode of existence. Can't escape it. Paul, the apostle, often mentions flesh when he's talking about sin. When he, what he means by flesh is that those sinful desires that you know, push us, it's that the flesh is those sinful desires that live in us. Sin marks us from birth. And that's what we call original sin. Original sin is a theological word that's not in the Bible, but the idea is in the Bible. Meaning that there is a form or motivational twisted heart in a child from its infancy. Prior to any actual sin, when it can understand a law and break a law, when you say, don't bite me, and the kid bites you, that's transgressing your law. But even before that, there's, they're born, we are born with a, a uh, twisting towards sin. So what that means is we're not sinners because we sin, but rather we sin because we're sinners, because we're born with it. Okay? That's what original sin brings us to. Born with an enslaved nature. Jesus taught that sin is not only outward, but it's inner desires and lust as well. You know, why is that true? Why is it not just outward things but inner things as well? Well, because God can see those things. Other human beings can't see what's going on inside our mind and our heart. But God can look all the way in and read all those thoughts as you're doing them. That's why sin is not just external, but it's internal as well. Things like pride and self-reliance, hypocrisy and lack of love towards others, rejecting the good news, rejecting God's Son is sin. So it's not just the Ten Commandments. It's rebellion against God. All that God is, all that God wants us to be, rebelling against that is lawlessness. So even if a person feels that they have lived a good life, can they say that they have loved God with all their heart, soul, mind and strength? They can't. In fact, that is the first commandment and the greatest commandment. So if you've broken the most important commandment, it doesn't really matter what you do for the rest. I mean, it does, but it means you're in rebellion against God. Whoever doesn't accept God's Son or holds him at arm's length and doesn't embrace him and love him. This is what Jesus said. John 3.18, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. John 3.18. So, what can be done against that pervasive sin and guilt? Like, you know, that, that doesn't make me feel assured at all. That makes me feel condemned. 
when I hear what sin is. But that's good because we don't have the solution in us. Jesus provides us a solution. And faith in him is accessible to all people. God doesn't cast anyone aside if they're not good enough or if they've been in jail for murder, whatever. Anyone who believes in the Son has eternal life. That chance to be forgiven and to be made holy by God is for all people. So the idea of talking about sin, how big it is, how bad it is, how all-pervasive it is, all it's meant to do is simply bring us to our knees to realise we can't save ourselves, only God can through Jesus. So what John is actually talking about here when it says no one who um, is a son of God continues to sin, keeps on sinning, verse 6, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning, that might you know, really freak people out. And they go, well, I know since I've become a Christian I've, there has been sins I've kept doing, haven't wanted to but I've done them. Does that mean I'm not a Christian? But what he's talking about here is lawlessness. Okay, rebellion against God. That's clear in the context. The keep on sinning means lawlessness, a lifestyle of ignoring God. So again, that should give you insurance. That should make you happy. Well, okay, I'm not perfect, but I'm not living lawlessness. And then this beautiful verse 9, no one who is born of God will continue to sin in other words, live in lawlessness, ignoring God, because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. The seed of God refers to the Holy Spirit. His presence in the believer. This is what Jesus promised when he said he would send a counsellor. It's what Paul continuously goes back to in his letters, especially Romans, to talk about how we can overcome sin because of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Jesus appointed us to go and bear fruit. You know, do yourselves a favour, church. Take note of the fruit that God is bearing through you. I'm not saying in a proud, you know, boastful way, but if you never can recognise the fruit in your life, if you, can, if you can never say to yourself, oh, actually, I did pray this week, yeah. I listened to some great hymns. I, I sent an encouragement card, and thank you for those who send cards to me, you know. And, and I prayed for some people, and I encouraged my brother. I mean, that just becomes a normal part of Christian life. We, oh, but that's just, just a serving God. Well, no, stop and think about that. Think about the fruit that really is coming from your life. Because Jesus appointed you to go and bear fruit. And part of your assurance that you know that you know God is realising that you are fruitful. That fruit is not coming from our sinful nature, it's coming from the Holy Spirit. Proof that you know God. So you know, take note, not in a proud how great I am way, but just look at what God's doing through me. Isn't that good? Okay? Do you, do you get what I'm saying? That's proof that you know God. It's assurance. So in conclusion, our assurance, we know that we know God, 
is proven by our obedient holiness. That's the first proposition he said at the beginning. It's encouraged to us by the fact that um, we have a desire in us, we, we want to purify ourselves, and it's encouraged to us by the fact that God's seed lives in us. It's not from us. His seed is bearing that fruit. You know, seed, fruit. Right, see all those pictures there? Lovely green foliage. That's what we are. It's proof that we know him. Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many go, go that way. But small is the gate and narrow is the path that leads to life, and only a few find it. That is the road in which we are on. You have chosen to go that way. You, know? you have. You're on that road. That's a fruitful, bearing road. It's what we're committed to at our conversion. Although we still may sin, the good news is we don't want to. We give in to temptation and we regret it. That proves that we are in God's care because his spirit causes us to regret that. Next week, or not next week, we'll, I'll do the Jesus story next week, but after that we'll go on to the next two tests of assurance, love and truth, obeying the truth or believing the truth, really that's what it's about, believing truth, okay, as tests that you really do know God. Hopefully by the end of this little series, if someone asks you, how do you know that you know God, you'll straight away go, ha <laughs> I'm glad you asked me that question because I know I know God because I'm living a holy life, something I never used to do, because I, I have love in me, God's love, and because I believe the truth, not the things of this world, I believe the truth of the Bible. That proves I know God. That's what John tells me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for sending your spirit to live in us. Jesus promised that you would come and indeed you have come. We don't always feel you or recognise you. We can't see you. We can't point at you. But we know the change in our life is because God's seed remains in us. And it gives us great assurance we really are children of God. Amen. Amen. To conclude our service,